Casey was the chief engineer of the AEA, and he oversaw the design and construction and the first flight of the first plane, which was the White Wing, which flew off the frozen surface of Lake Keuka in Hammondsport on March 12, 1908, almost a full year before the Silver Dart. Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Today, author John Langley. It's a rare person who exhibits a perfect balance of strengths in unrelated areas. An NHL all-star who speaks like a professor of English, or a ballerina who operates a hedge fund. And then there are those who excel in a field, but are forever overshadowed by a famous associate. Well, Casey Baldwin's rightful place in Canadian history seems to have been obscured by both curses. An Ontario-born engineer, he moved to rural Cape Breton in his 20s, and stayed there. He became the first Canadian to fly a plane. He spent his life inventing machines that would let us move faster through air and over water. But it appears he was too busy creating to capitalize on his inventions or to promote himself. So Casey Baldwin is not a household name in Canada. John Langley's new biography provides compelling evidence that Canadian history needs some revisions. It's entitled, The Remarkable Untold Story of Frederick Walker Casey Baldwin, Gentleman, Genius, and Alexander Graham Bell's Protégé. John, welcome to Book Me. Pleasure to be here, Casas. Now, I can see a problem right away. If someone is not a household name, how did you find out about Casey Baldwin and get convinced that he needed to be better known? Well, our family has had close connections with Cape Breton. My father's side of the family is uh, Port Hawkesbury based, and uh, we've lived in the in the Bedeck area for the last 35 years. So, the Bell story, the broad Bell story, has been of great interest. In fact, uh, I consider Alexander Graham Bell to be one of my personal icons. But I also knew at the time and throughout that period that there was an untold story of, of Casey Baldwin as part of the Bell, bigger Bell story. So it was is that that actually uh, motivated me to at some point look into it further. And that opportunity came when I met uh, some members of the Baldwin family only in the last few years who uh, very generously offered uh, to provide me with uh, Casey Baldwin's family papers to help write this story. Mr. Bell, of course, was born in Scotland. He invented the the telephone in America, and he fell in love with the area around Bedeck in Cape Breton. Uh, The family summered there, but he also built a scientific lab there. How did Casey Baldwin, who was a, a college football star in Ontario and an engineering graduate of U of T, end up as his protege? Well, uh, towards the... Uh early part of the 20th century, Alexander Graham Bell was tired, and he was looking for young blood to help him in his experimentation and lab work. Um, Mabel, ever his confidant and biggest supporter, was very aware of that. And uh, there was a young gentleman by the name of Douglas McCurdy, who uh, was a Bedecker and also a classmate of Casey's at U of T, also taking engineering. Mabel wrote him in 1905, Uh, asking if she knew of anybody in the engineering field that might be interested in working with her famous husband. 
in Bedeck, Nova Scotia. And it was that inquiry on her behalf that eventually resulted in Casey coming with, at that time, Douglas McCurdy to Bedeck to meet Alexander Graham Bell uh, and to eventually work with him and move on to the Bambrea estate of the Bells uh, and from which he never left. Well, could you read to us uh, about how you started to present your case for Casey Baldwin? It'd be a pleasure, Costas. Uh, bear with me while I read <laughs> out loud. Inexplicably, the story of Frederick Walker Casey Baldwin has never before been written. Casey was a truly remarkable individual who left an indelible mark in the annals of Canadian aviation and marine history. It's no credit to the country of his birth that his story has been largely unknown for so long. This book is an effort to address that oversight. Casey's story is about people and personalities, people whose characters were shaped and defined by circumstance. It's a story of true genius, of epic accomplishment, and of epic failure to seize upon those achievements by a country too complacent about success and too indifferent about going its own way. In the spring of 1906, Casey was graduating from his studies in mechanical and electrical engineering at the University of Toronto. In his final years there, Casey had developed an interest in manned flight. In December of 1903, the Wright brothers had successfully flown a heavier-than-air machine near Kitty Hawk in North Carolina, and the world was riveted on the concept of man taking to the air. Recently published papers by two American pioneers in flight by the names of Octave Chanute and Samuel Pierpont Langley, no relation, had attracted Casey's attention, so much so that he and another student spent some time in the university drafting room designing Casey's own idea of a flying machine. In an ironic twist, Casey was reprimanded by his instructor in the engineering department, quote, for wasting class time on such foolishness, unquote. Undaunted, Casey persisted with his newfound passion, and within a few short months, he would become the first Canadian to fly. I guess you could say Alexander Graham Bell assembled something of a, an all-star team around him. They were all under the age of 30. What, what was special about that group and the dynamics of the group? It was a, a unique coterie, as I say in the book, a unique uh, association of five gentlemen, uh, all with their own particular talents, which, who were assembled with the sole purpose of, quote, getting into the air. Um, Alexander Graham Bell was the paternal force. Mabel Bell was the financier. But the five participants, uh, Casey himself, uh, Douglas McCurdy, the Bedecker, uh, Thomas Selfridge was a, uh, a member of the American military army who was really doing sort of uh, scrutineering on behalf of the American army, but also very interested in flight. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Glenn Curtis, uh, machine maker, motorcycle maker from Hammondsport. And I, I said five, there's just those, those four, plus Bell. Uh, their sole purpose was to put together this group and get into the air, recognizing that up to that point in time, Bell, who had been experimenting with uh, flight through kites primarily, had never gotten into the air as such. This is the young blood that was going to make it happen. The talents these people brought to the table were unique 
and they dovetailed into each other's abilities in such a way as in a 12 to 18 month period during which this aerial experiment association was uh, intact, they managed to not just get into the air, but they produced flight or aircraft from nothing with no prior knowledge or ability or construction talents. So they just put it all together and made it happen. Now, now again, the Wright brothers were credited with, with uh, the first piloted flight three years before this, 1903, hmm. and, and they weren't the only ones in the world uh, trying to advance uh, airplane technology. What was unique about the uh, AEA, the Aerial Experiment Association, in 1906? Well, I think what was unique was uh, they they brought they perfected the art. The uh, what the Wright brothers had done was significant, of course, in 1903, a few years before. Uh, their flight or flights were never public; they were private flights. Uh, everything that Bell did with his associates and so on was was public. Uh, so there was nothing that was left untold or unknown about what was happening, including some of their mishaps. But uh, they it, it was public in Bedeck. Bedeckers were watching some of this oh, stuff yes, going on. Yeah. I think what most people don't realize, most people equate uh, the story of Bell and, and uh, Baldwin with the silver dart. And Bell, I should say Bell, Baldwin, and McCurdy. McCurdy flew the silver dart in Bedeck. You have to realize the silver dart was the fourth prototype that was built by this Aerial Experiment Association. All four machines, including the dart, were built in Hammondsport and tests flown down in Hammondsport. Now, you would all already mentioned that other uh, person tends to be an unseen player uh, who emerges as very influential, and that is Mabel Bell. What was she observing uh, about Casey and the others in the Aerial Experiment Association and their relationship with her husband, Alexander Graham Bell? Uh, everything. She was a great observer, and uh, she may have been deaf, but she didn't miss anything. Um, she was um, a real people person. They're both very social, but uh, she was the business person behind the, the twosome. Uh, so in terms of finances, she controlled the purse strings, which is very important, but for which this wouldn't have happened at all. But she was very close to every one of these individuals, uh, even Curtis, who was a little more aloof, uh, a little more of a rough stud perhaps, and an independent businessman at the time he came to join this group. But, and still uh, under the age of 30. Yes, exactly. Now, you know, of course, uh, uh, McCurdy was well known to the family. He'd been sort of raised in and around Membrea before he went to school. Uh, Casey was late coming on the scene, and but he very quickly was taken under the wing of Mabel. She recognized the best qualities in any person, and he was pure blue. He was just very fine. And, so of course, how, and she felt the same about Selfridge as well, by the way. So how did Casey become the first Canadian and the first citizen of the British Empire to fly? Uh, good question. There's a misconception that uh, McCurdy was actually the first Canadian to fly, but that's not true. Uh, and the book corrects that. That's important. Uh, and it takes us into the story of how we got to the Silver Dart eventually, but three planes happened and came along before that. And uh, they were all constructed in Hammondsport at the... Uh, Glenn Curtis shops down there, which were already existing at that time. And he had been into motorcycles before right. this, hadn't he? Yeah, he was the fellow that machined the planes. You see, that was his expertise. But Casey was the chief engineer of the AEA, 
and he oversaw the design and construction and the first flight of the first plane, which was the White Wing, which flew off the frozen surface of Lake Keuka in Hammondsport on March 12, 1908, almost a full year before the Silver Dart. But Canadian history still tends to focus on Douglas McCurdy, who flew the Silver Dart over the ice of the Bredore Lakes in 1909. That's right, a year later, roughly. Uh, Bell decided that one of these planes should fly in Canada. It was a great marketing move. And it was the fourth plane, and each one of these associates, the four associates, were given a plane to design. And the fourth happened to be McCurdy's. So the first three were the White Wing, the Red Wing, and the June Bug. So Baldwin got the first plane, and he flew it first, and therefore became the first Canadian to fly. Uh, Douglas McCurdy eventually flew the, some of the other planes, but the Silver Dart was his, and it was a great moment in Canadian aerospace history when he flew that in February of, of 1909 at Padec. Now You mentioned uh, Bell thought it would be a good marketing move to fly one of these planes in, in Canada. What, what about the efforts of Bell and Baldwin to interest the Canadian government in aircraft, or I guess aerodromes as they called them back then? Aerodromes and eventually hydrodromes. Uh, we get to that after a while. But uh, with the success of the Silver Dart, Bell felt that he should do his best to promote the interests of these two gentlemen, his boys as he called them, McCurdy and Casey, and uh, to try and let them establish what would become the Canadian aerospace industry through a company that was incorporated called the Canadian Aerodrome Company, CAC. And th that company, with uh, with uh, Casey and McCurdy, built aircraft in Bedeck. And the first two aircraft they built, based on the Silver Dart model, Bedeck 1 and Bedeck 2. And they flew regularly all around Bedeck. They were just mesmerizing citizens for, for months, <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah. And they flew off a field uh, in a little farm uh, four or five miles outside the village of Bedeck called the Bentick Farm, which historically really attained the status of... Uh, a uh, birthplace of the Canadian aviation. The same way Americans know about Kitty Hawk and the Wright brothers. Exactly, and, and this is just not known. And I make a point in the book of, of stating the case for this uh, to be given national significance, recognition. Now, getting back to the, the business side of things, what about innovations that Casey Baldwin could have patented but didn't? Well, patents were a big issue with Bell, you know, dating right back to the telephone, and he spent a lot of time in the courts. And uh, there were patent issues involved with parts of the airplanes as well. Uh, and I should say that some of the innovation that you asked about earlier involved things like developing the airline, which was a, a development that the AEA put together and in perfecting the aircraft. And what did it do for aircraft? It, uh, it, it tipped the wings so the aircraft could turn. And uh, there were little, little wings built into the end of the wings, which uh, were lifted and, and dropped. And as they were, uh, the, the plane went left and right and so on. So it gave control to the plane. And uh, that was really a revolution. And they're still using aircraft today. And it really started with uh, the AEA efforts. Now tell us about the, the deepening personal relationship between the Bells and the Baldwins, because Casey's wife came to live there too. She did. She was quite a profound force on, in the whole story, uh, Kathleen. Uh, she came along from Ontario uh, shortly after Casey arrived. They married and they established themselves in Benbrea in their bungalow, and they raised a family. 
And, and Kathleen was a very dynamic person, very uh, outdoorsy type, uh, very social. And she got along very well with Mabel. Uh, there was a close bond that became established there. And, and it was, you know, ben, the Point House, the big house in Ben Brea, where the Bells lived, was the scene of, of great entertainment over the years. And uh, Kathleen became quite a hostess. And uh, Casey more indifferent about that sort of thing, much like Bell is vis-a-vis -vis his wife. Uh, stand back, it'll, you know, that can happen. Entertainers in their own right because of who they were and what they did. But the ladies, Mabel and Kathleen, really got along well and carried that, that part of life in Membrea. And, and some of the correspondence you've accessed and, and reproduced in the book uh, really gives so much color and, and, you know, detailed description of people's feelings towards one another. Correspondence is key to the whole book. The, the book was written around the correspondence, hundreds of pieces, which took hundreds of hours to read. The writing was always sometimes not the best, but the content was really quite profound. And in that day and age, people wrote letters, didn't have internet, didn't have, well, we had telephone barely, but it wasn't that commonplace. <laughs> Thanks to you know who. <laughs> that gentleman. So letter writing was, was something which was just a way of life. And some people wrote a whole lot more than others. Mabel Bell was a prolific letter writer. Alexander Graham Bell was a prolific record keeper diaries and that sort of thing. And he would dictate every night to Casey. Exactly. and Everything Casey. that had passed through his mind and everything that had transpired in the lab during the day. And we'll, we'll, we'll be gone, Casey, if he didn't make notes of his experiments that day, he'd be taking the task for it. So letter writing was very much important at that time in terms of communication. In terms of writing the book, the content of those letters, uh, Rudy, uh, gave flesh to the bones of the bear story, and but for which it would be just a story that didn't have that uh, that content. Now, between the wars, it seemed to become apparent that the Canadian government or the Defense Department wasn't going to really capitalize or on 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 the experiments and the, the discoveries in in Bedeck, uh as part of a, an aeronautical, um, as part of developing an aerospace industry in Canada. But what about Casey's next passion, and that is creating a hydrofoil? Well, you're quite right, Constance. The, the, the Canadian government did not take advantage of the opportunity with air. Uh, Casey moved on from the development of principles of flight through the, the four aircraft that the AEA put together. and took the same principle of lift with airplanes and applied it to water using the same uh, foil concept that you use with a wing of an airplane, only applying it in the water and having a, a vessel uh, move through the water at speed and rise on foils, i.e. hydrofoil. So the whole hull would lift out of the water? Literally, yes, yeah. And the, the vessel would, would uh, fly on these wings or uh, foils. This was not new technology. Casey did not invent the technology. It had been worked on largely in Europe before he. But uh, when the Bells traveled around the world with Casey and Kathleen in tow in 1910, 1911, uh, they visited uh, Italy and uh, saw what had been done there by an Italian who uh, 
really, I think, excited Casey. So Casey took some of what he saw there back home and decided to do his own experimentation and to design his own hydrofoil aircraft. And he reached quite astonishing speeds on, on the Bredore Lakes. It, well, of course, the HT-4 was the pinnacle of his success with hydrofoil technology. By 1919, he had created a number of prototypes, many prototypes, but the HD-4 in uh, on September 9th of 1919 uh, created a world speed record of 72 miles an hour on the harbor, the waters of Bedeck Bay, uh, a record which stood for 10 years afterwards. And that was from Casey's own bare-bones work. Uh, Bell encouraged and financed but didn't have hands-on. Uh, unfortunately for Casey, I guess, uh, Bell always was the one who the press and the media were attracted to in terms of success of things like planes and hydrofoils. So he was generally credited with the uh, success of these uh, endeavors. But again, uh, the government, the Defense Department, didn't really jump onto this as something that could advance their capabilities on the water. No, exactly. The... the uh, the wartime ministries in England and Canada were interested, but only passively, in initially aircraft. And we all know where the aircraft went eventually. And then subsequently with hydrofoil technology, it was of passing interest. There are all sorts of uh, scrutineers that came from Britain and the Canadian government and so on to look at these experiments, but they never saw the commercial viability or the effectiveness of the use of this technology in wartime until well after the fact. Well, I was going to say it was decades after that the DND actually developed the hydrofoil HMCS Bredore. Exactly. Casey had to wait two wars before the Canadian government recognized the importance of hydrofoil technology, and he had died by the time the, the Bredore had come along. And then what about the fate of that? <laughs> well, it's, it's the fate. There are two issues. One is aircraft and one is hydrofoil. The fate of both suffered at the hands of the Canadian government. The uh, aircraft, which in Canada was perfected with the Avro Aero technology of the 1950s, 60s, uh, was canned because of expense, despite the fact that it was leading edge supersonic jet aircraft technology that created a whole industry in, of aerospace industry in Canada. All those folks, uh, after the demise of the Avro project, uh, a lot of them went down to the States and worked with NASA. And look what they did. They got somebody to the moon, etc. So uh, the same thing happened with the hydrofoil. The HMC Espador was very successful. It uh, had good reviews, good results, but it was very expensive. So the government of the day, being money conscious, canceled that project. And with it went the technology, the leading ed, edge technology, and, and uh, hydrofoils as a, uh, a viable opportunity to market something that could have been effective in wartime or peacetime was, was gone. There's something very poignant and sad about Casey being overshadowed by both McCurdy and Bell. Um, he was loved by all. He was elected to Parliament at one point, but he was never a self-promoter, as we've discussed already, and, and, and never really kept his eye on, on the, business of, the business of being an inventor. He was just like his mentor that way. That's exactly what Bell didn't do. He had no eye for business. That was where Mabel came along. Casey was almost a clone that way. But unsupposing, unpretentious, 
very willing to sacrifice everything to get the job done. And at the end of the day, when it succeeded, he was already thinking of the next project. So he never looked for any kind of uh, uh, adulation at all for anything that he achieved. It was just his way. And uh, perhaps it was a shortcoming. Um, he could perhaps have taken more advantage of opportunities to talk about himself a little bit, but it took someone else to come along years later to do that for him. And I think your book will help do that too. <laughs> John, thank you very much for joining us on Book Me. My pleasure, Costas. John Langley is the author of The Remarkable Untold Story of Frederick Walker Casey Baldwin, Gentleman, Genius, and Alexander Graham Bell's Protégé. If you'd like to comment on a podcast like today's with John, our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. If you'd like to hear more conversations with people who create books in Atlantic Canada, we have dozens on the Book Me podcast. Whenever a new interview is added, we post an alert on our Instagram account. You've guessed it, at Book Me Podcast. And share the word with anyone you know who's a reader. Rate or review the podcast on your favorite download site. And if you're in the Lunenburg County area, our podcasts are broadcast every day on the nonprofit radio station CHLU 93.7 FM. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Thanks to the Halifax Central Library for the use of its studio. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox is our inventive high-flying technician. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read.